Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. It has been said that Judaism was the manger in which the newborn Christ was laid. Jesus was a Jew. He was of the tribe of Judah. No doubt you've noticed this book. The first and largest part of this book is a history of the Jews. In my Bible, there are over 600 pages of Jewish history before you ever encounter the name of Jesus in the New Testament. It is a Jewish history. It does begin at the very beginning when God creates Adam. Adam revolts against God and a promise is made of a descendant of Adam. And as time goes along, this promise is focused down upon this whole earth, down into a single man named Abraham, the father of the Jewish people. His descendants are the Jewish people, a section of them. And God promises to Abraham what he'd promised to Adam, promises through you, Abraham, I will bless all the families of the earth. And therefore, 600 pages of the history of Abraham's descendants, the Jewish people, as they are awaiting the fulfillment of the promise. That's a lot of pages. You know, you read your Old Testament, it takes a long time. And that is the Jewish people, Abraham's descendants. And what takes place there? One of their greatest kings, David arises to lead the Jewish people, the Israelites, and prophecies are made that the descendant of Adam, who will fix the world and remove the curse and bring the blessing, is the also descendant of Abraham, through whom all the families of the earth will be blessed, who is also a descendant of David, who will be a King, removing the curse, bringing blessing, freeing from enemies, giving redemption, leading to restoration and salvation forever. So for 600 pages of Jewish history, you're waiting, waiting, waiting for the seed, the descendant, or as he comes to be known, even in prophecy, the Messiah, the king who will undo Adam's curse. And he will come... Not as an American. He will not be English. He will not be European. He will not be African or Asian. He is not in the Latino world. He will come as a Jew. Within Judaism. It has to be. While God's people are waiting for this Messiah to come... In order to focus their minds upon him and his coming salvation, God gives to his people, the Jewish people, after their exodus from Egypt, a law. On Mount Sinai, the commandments, you know the Ten Commandments, there were 613 of them. And he gives them to his people through Moses. And his people, just like us, assume, ah, this world is broken, but now we have laws we can keep and fix it. 600 pages of that not working out. 
The law was not given so they could keep it and fix the world. It was given to be a stick that you take and shake up a bee's nest. That is our sin in our hearts showing us it's broken. And once the bee starts stinging and then they realize what? We need a descendant of Adam, a descendant of Abraham, a Messiah descendant of King David to come and fix the problem that we are. 600 pages of Jewish history building over time the anticipation of a Messiah who will come as a Jew and fix the whole broken world. This is why we say that these 600 pages, this Old Testament, Judaism, is a manger in which Jesus is born. If you've come to Christ recently or you're investigating the claims of Christ, then you probably know some things about Jesus. But what you know about Jesus rests upon a foundation this thick of 2,000 years of Jewish history building in anticipation, prophecy after prophecy, shadow after shadow, everything pointing up to Jesus. And then he's born. This was not an afterthought on God's part. This is the most elaborate and complex preparation for any event that has ever taken place, Jesus coming into the world. This is why the Apostle Paul, talking about Judaism, really specifically the law of Moses, could say, summarize it this way. Here's its purpose. The law of Moses was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you're all sons of God through faith. And if you're Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. God's law in the Old Testament, and Judaism more broadly, was a guardian or a tutor that over quite a lot of hundreds of years was instructing his people to prepare them in anticipation for Christ. Faith in Christ. This is why today you and I are not under the Old Testament law with its prohibitions on eating and what you can wear and specifics of what you can do. No longer under a guardian, Christ has come. Everything was meant to point to Christ, to focus us upon him. And Jesus, therefore, we must reaffirm, was a Jew. The long and stubborn history of anti-Semitism in Western countries is a nauseating sort of a tragedy and honestly utterly bewildering when you think that Jesus himself was a Jewish person. Judaism was designed by God to lead to and point to Jesus and he comes as a descendant of Abraham and then through the Jewish people salvation reaches us non-Jewish people. There should be this long history, 2,000 years of pro-Semitism, but because hearts are corrupt there is anti-Semitism and no doubt the devil involved as well. Jesus was a Jew. Now why we should mention this as we begin to consider the resurrection on Easter requires an explanation, and it's simply this, that the very first part of the resurrection story in the Gospel of Luke focuses upon Judaism, the preparation leading to everything Christ would be and do. It's Luke himself, in our text, who points us to those first 600 pages and does not want us to miss the fact that 
even the resurrection, it's not an afterthought. It was well prepared. That's what we find in his gospel. As Jesus today is going to be buried and three days later rise again, in his burial, what stands out most in the gospel of Luke is that Jesus was a Jew. Let's see how God prepared for this and how that's echoed even in Jesus' burial here in Luke chapter 23, beginning in verse 50. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. We have here two parties. Joseph of Arimathea and the Galilean women who had followed Jesus during his earthly ministry. And what unites them together in our passage is not simply the fact that they were both involved in the burial of Jesus. The other thing that unites them together is that these two parties were both good and faithful Jews. Even though a partial hardening had come upon the Jewish people and as a whole they rejected Jesus their Messiah, and that's most of what we've seen, Luke does not want you to miss the fact that this was not true of every person within Israel. That there was a remnant, a true Israel, true Jews of the heart, circumcised in the heart, who did respond to Jesus the way that he deserved, by honoring him. And this is the foreshadow of that. It's found in these two parties, Joseph of Arimathea and the Galilean women, who, as we will see, are faithful Jews, outwardly, inwardly, and they honor Christ, their Messiah. They are really representing for us, in a sort of shadowy way, what Judaism was meant to do to its Messiah when it came, to bend the knee, to say this is the Messiah that we have for 600 pages, for 2,000 years prepared you for. It's him. And even though the larger body reject him, Luke is showing us that was not true of everyone. True Judaism bows its knee before its Messiah, which is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. So this morning, we're going to follow Luke. He's going to show us these two parties. We're going to see Joseph of Arimathea. We're going to see that he's very Jewish and that he's truly a Jew and that he honors Christ. And we're going to look at the Galilean women. We're going to see that they're very Jewish, true Jews of the heart, and they honor Christ. This is what Judaism was meant to do to the Messiah. As this Christ prepares to emerge from the grave, 
as he's about to bring to completion, to fruition, the long purposes of God matured over hundreds of years, it's right and fitting that we should be directed at least one more time to the manger in which Christ was laid as a child, into Judaism, supporting everything he is and everything he does. So first then, let's go with the text. And let's begin by considering this first party, Joseph of Arimathea. Look at his description again in the first two verses. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town, Jewish town, of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. I hope what stands out first to you in this text is just how thoroughly Jewish Joseph of Arimathea is. There are so many details here that Luke had no need to mention to us, but he mentions them for a purpose. It is important that you recognize that this Joseph, whom we famously remember as the one who took Jesus down and buried him, is a thoroughly Jewish individual. Now, where do you see that in the text? Well, begin with the beginning. What is his name? It's Joseph. Where does the name Joseph come from? He is the famous Jewish patriarch. He is the very reason that the children of Israel were down in Egypt. He is the man whom God used after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's Jacob's son who saved his family, saved the promised line of the Jewish people by delivering them from a famine. Joseph of Arimathea is named after Joseph, the great Jewish patriarch. Notice too that he comes not just from any town anywhere, he comes from the, quote, Jewish town, specifically of Arimathea. Really, Jewish is more important than Arimathea because we don't know where Arimathea is. Our best guess is perhaps this was Ramah which was that Old Testament town you may remember where the great prophet, the Jewish prophet, Samuel was born, the one who anointed David king over Israel. Maybe that's another name for Arimathea. We don't know. But we do know because Luke says it. He doesn't have to, but he says it. It's a Jewish town. Joseph was a member of the council. You don't get more Jewish than this. That council, what council is that? That's the Sanhedrin. That is the supreme court of the Jewish people. There's no higher religious decision-making entity besides perhaps the high priest who's a part of the Sanhedrin within the entire land of the Jewish people. This is it. This is the pinnacle of leadership besides the high priesthood. And here's a man who is on that 70-man or so council leading the Jewish people. We've seen this group, the Sanhedrin, they were the very ones who condemned Jesus to his death. They rejected him and in some sense represented the people in rejecting their Messiah. But now we find, and Luke is adamant that you know this, it was not a unanimous decision. That is not what the Sanhedrin did. True, authentic Judaism, rejecting this false rabbi claiming to be a Messiah. No. Although we only have this one figure here, this Joseph, he is thoroughly, fully Jewish in leadership, and he has a different take on this Jesus of Nazareth. 
The Gospel of John tells us that Joseph was secretly a disciple of Jesus for fear of the Jews, but he was a disciple of him nonetheless. And he is at the very heart of Judaism in Jesus' day. He's on the council. Even that concluding note of the description, it says that he was looking for the kingdom of God. And what can that mean? He's a Jew. 600 pages, 2,000 years of anticipation for what? For the king, the Messiah, the one who will undo the curse, the one who will deliver his people. And if the king comes, then what comes with the king? The kingdom, it's the very kingdom of God. This is the messianic expectation and hope that Joseph, thoroughly a Jew, was raised and bred in, saturated with the Old Testament scriptures. This is what he longs for. He's looking for the kingdom of God. And he believes, as a true Jew, that that man upon the cross, now cold and lifeless, as he wraps him in linens to bury him away, that that man was, and perhaps believes still is, the king that we've waited for. We, of course, don't know the extents of Joseph's faith at this point. What does he believe? Does he believe this man will be raised? The Old Testament scriptures predicted it. Did he know that? We don't know. But at least he's taking him down and he's burying him. Why should Luke present to us the most Jewish figure <laughs> that he can, this Joseph of Arimathea, here before us as Jesus is being buried? right as we lead into the resurrection? Because we need to be prepared, just like the Jewish people were prepared for thousands of years, we are being prepared. Because the resurrection doesn't just pop out of thin air, like an afterthought of God. It is a culmination of a long process. Even the very history of our world that we live upon, God directed every part and facet of it to lead to a resurrection. This isn't accidental. This isn't something new. This isn't some sort of imitation of a mystery religion of the Greeks and so we'll have someone rise from the dead. This isn't some kind of copycat of some ancient Egyptian myth. This is everything God had been working history up Toward Judaism, what his work in the Jewish people was, was to lead to a resurrection, the defeat of death, which is the pinnacle of the curse. So Luke just wants you to remember that you've seen a lot of Jewish people in this text rejecting their Messiah, but that's not natural, that's not normal, that's because of sin, that's because of a broken world we live in, that's why we all reject Christ from the time of our birth. But he wants you to see that true Judaism embracing the very heart of all that God had prepared, does not reject Jesus. In fact, if you look at Joseph, we say true Judaism, not that others aren't Jews. Of course, it's a combination of a belief system and a sort of ethnicity, so it's unique in that way. But true Judaism, I'm referring to what the Apostle Paul said in his letter to the Romans. He said this, No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. Nor is circumcision, that sign of being Jewish, outward and physical. But, he continues, a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. This is not to say that believers today supersede or take the place of Israel so that there are no promises left for her. We believe that there are. 
But what Paul is saying is that true Judaism, in his definition of it, it's in scripture, sinks lower than the surface of an individual. And when you return to Joseph of Arimathea, you find that he's as Jewish as Jewish can be because he's not just externally Jewish, he is that, very much so. But when you look at the true definition of Judaism that Paul gives in the letter to the Romans, Joseph is, as far as we can tell, also that. It's not just an external circumcision, externally happening to be born as a Jew, but it's something deeper than that. If anyone's Jewish, Joseph is Jewish, externally and internally. And how do you know that? Look at the text, end of verse 50. That's pretty obvious. He's a good and righteous man. In Jesus' life, those most eager to see him at the beginning of his life and at the end of his life were Israelites indeed, Jews of the heart. They were righteous persons looking for the kingdom of God. You remember at the beginning of Luke, two years ago now, if you remember that, Zechariah and Elizabeth were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Or again, Simeon, that aged man in the temple who meets Jesus just eight days old, it says he was a righteous and devout man waiting for the consolation of Israel, aka the kingdom of God. Jesus wasn't just born in the manger of Judaism, although clearly so, but now even in his burial, he is in the environment of a thorough Jewishness. It's all Jewish. That's what he's living in, beginning, end, and not just externally, but Jews of the heart, the true people of God, who fear God and walk in his commandments because God has changed their heart. Now, this does not mean that our friend Joseph of Arimathea was a perfectly righteous person. As I said, John's gospel tells us that he was a disciple of Jesus on the Sanhedrin, but secretly for fear of the Jews. It's not good. That's not ideal. You shouldn't be a disciple of Jesus secretly. He wasn't a perfectly righteous man, but I think we can understand some of his reasoning he's on the Sanhedrin that has just violently condemned his master to torture crucifixion and a bloody death it's not exactly a time to raise your hand and say and I'm his follower would have been good would have been bold it would have been noble it would have been right but he didn't do it so this is not some kind of work salvation saying Joseph was such an inherently righteous person in and of himself by his own merits. Paul will spend the rest of the New Testament contradicting that opinion. If you think that you can be made right with God by being a good and righteous man, you are very wrong. Remember, that's why the law came in the Old Testament to show you you can't do that. But here you have Joseph who we must presume God has worked within to change his heart. So that he becomes this good and righteous man, a Jew of the heart, because the heart has been changed by God. We can at least say about Joseph that he did not consent with the evil that the rest of the council did in condemning Jesus to death. You see that verse 51, who had not consented to their decision and action. Joseph is a Jew Outwardly, inwardly, in every way, at the heart of Judaism, on the council. Luke has pointed that out to you so that he can make this next point. 
which is, here's an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit, representing true Judaism. And how does he treat Jesus the Christ? Look in our text. Verses 52 and 53. This man, this Jewish man, he went to Pilate, the Roman governor, and he asked for the body of Jesus Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. Let us give him a little credit. That's a bold act to go to the Roman governor. No doubt his companions on the Sanhedrin are going to find out about this. And yet now he thinks is the time to act. He asks for the body. Pilate ensures that he's dead and then gives him the body. Why does he put his life at risk in asking this question? In order to honor Christ. Because true Judaism, Judaism of the heart, it honors its Messiah. It honors, it receives, and it honors Christ. John's gospel informs us that there was another figure present while this burial was taking place. And that person is Nicodemus. Again, Another Jewish leader, Jesus calls him, early in John, a teacher of Israel. A man looked up to as a teacher of Judaism. Nicodemus, who had come to Jesus, just like Joseph, who was secretly a disciple, had come to Jesus at night, not to be noticed by other Jews, sort of protecting himself. And Jesus had told Nicodemus, unless you are born again, you will not see the kingdom that's coming. That's where we get the term born again. Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. And we're told in John that Nicodemus came and joined with Joseph. And these two Jewish, Jewish persons, leaders of the Jews in Jerusalem, both of them together are involved in burying Jesus. Nicodemus brings 75 pounds of spices for the Jewish burial custom of burying Jesus. That is not a typical amount of spices. That is... That is the weight of spices you bring to bury a king, as far as we can tell. But Nicodemus, like Joseph, this true Jew, honors Christ. Because that's what Judaism is meant for. That's why God designed it. That's why he crafted it, to receive and to honor the one it was pointing to all along. And that's what we see in these men as they bury Christ. You see that even in Joseph, we're, we're told in the other Gospels, At the tomb they bury Jesus in, it's not very far from Calvary where he was crucified, and it's Joseph's own tomb. Not at all an inexpensive purchase. And we're told in the Gospel of Luke right here, you noticed, it tells us, it doesn't have to tell us, right? But it tells you, no one had ever been laid in that tomb. Why is that mentioned? Because this is how you treat royalty. This is how you treat Someone you want to honor. You put 75 pounds of spices with them and put them in a tomb no one has ever been laid in. Tombs were expensive and therefore you would typically lay someone in a tomb and when they deteriorated, you would take their bones and move them somewhere else so you could bury someone else in that tomb. So you don't have to keep digging new ones. It takes a long time, as you might imagine, into a rock, as it says. However, no bones had ever been in this tomb. It had never been defiled by death. This is where you lay someone you want to honor. Joseph represents Judaism here and he honors Christ. 
In a world like ours, it has always been and continues to be the minority position among those who are Jewish, those to whom belong the oracles of God, those who are the blessed of the earth, even with their difficult history, those whom God specifically chose through whom to bless the world. It has always been the minority position of the Jewish people to accept Jesus Christ as the Messiah. Paul explains this by saying a partial hardening has happened to the Jewish people, but in the end, all Israel will be saved, that God's calling and his gifts are irrevocable. He's not going to take them back. There is still a special place in the heart of God for his people, for the Jewish people. And that's why Paul himself said, I wish I could wish I was cut off from Christ if only the Jews might be saved. Paul says a veil lies over their hearts. But when the gospel is preached and God works, that veil is removed and they see their Messiah. That's what you see here in Joseph. He is as Jewish as a man can be and he represents true Judaism embracing the Christ it had predicted. But Joseph is not the only party present here as Jesus is being buried. There's another group and it is the Galilean women. Also very Jewish, also honoring Christ. See them now as we move on, verses 54 onward. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed, that is, followed Joseph, and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then... They returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. You may know that the Jewish people, unlike us, count their days from evening to evening. Jesus has been crucified on Good Friday, he dies in the afternoon. Three, around three o'clock, and now the afternoon is progressing. Joseph has gone to ask Pilate, request for the body to bury it. This has to take place before sundown because counting days, evening to evening, Friday will end at sundown and Saturday will begin. Not in the morning, sunrise like us, it will begin at sundown. And therefore, it was the Jewish law that you rest on the Sabbath, no work could be done, and that would include... It depends, sometimes exceptions were made, but here at least that would include the burying of Jesus and the work done to bury him, the ritual. And therefore, this burial needs to happen fairly quickly. That's why Joseph's tomb, it's told to us, was nearby. This is also why you find in our text that it was the day of preparation. Friday for the Jews was the day of preparation because Saturday was the Sabbath of rest. Therefore, If there was any work you would typically have to do on a Saturday, you would need to do it on Friday. You'd have to prepare for Saturday, meals and so forth. In this case, this burial, it has to happen on the day of preparation. It has to happen before the sun goes down so that they as good Jews can rest when the sun goes down, which begins their Sabbath or their Saturday. And so Joseph and Nicodemus, we imagine, are working quickly here, wrapping Jesus, lots of spices, putting him away. And that's even why in our text, these women who are going to bring more spices later, they don't have time to acquire them and bring them now. It says they have to leave and prepare the ointments and the spices. 
Now notice again with these Galilean women, what stands out about them. We're not told a lot about them here. But the things we are told all point us to the same conclusion we had with Joseph, which is these are very Jewish women. That's almost the only thing we know about them in this text, is that they are Jewish. Notice it says that they are from Galilee. They had followed Jesus in Galilee. Jesus grew up, born in Bethlehem in the south, but he grew up in Nazareth, and most of his ministry was done in the northern part of Palestine, the northern part of the Jewish lands known as Galilee, sort of the backwoods, if you will, of the day compared to the south where capital Jerusalem was and where they are now. In Jesus' day, the Jewish people in Palestine dwelt in these two regions. In the south, you had what was called Judah. That's the tribe Jesus was born from, Judah. And in the north, you had Galilee with Samaria in between, with a sort of considered a half-breed of Jews people looked down on in that day. But you had the Galileans in the north and the Judeans in the south. These are women who had followed Jesus in his ministry in the north. Which means, if they are Galileans, they are Jews. Jews live in Galilee. It's almost all we know about these women. They are Jewish women. We have lists of their names before and after, which we'll get into in another message. But here we're just told they're from Galilee. And you may remember that part of the reason that there is a sort of division in the land, it's more complex than this, but it used to be a completely united kingdom under King David, which is why he was a great king so many years before. But shortly after his reign, the kingdom split in half. There was a civil war, just like we experienced in our country between the north and the south. And that led for them, unlike us, to a division that lasted for hundreds of years where you had Israel in the north and Judah in the south. They were never really fully reconciled. However, they sort of came together again in an odd way with the Roman occupation. So now they're Roman provinces, if you will. But what we find in this text is Jesus in the south in the capital of Judah, at the heart of Judaism, accompanied by those from the north, the Jews in the other part of the country, to demonstrate that Jesus is the king of the Jews, not just of the southern Jews, which we might be mistaken to think if his ministry and his death all took place there with no Galilean present, and not just the king of the Galilean Jews, which we might be tempted to think if he lived and died up north, but he spends his ministry north, travels south, dies in the south with people from the north. As if to say, he's the king of the Jewish people. He needs Jews to be around him. He's the one king uniting the halves. He's the savior of all of his people. Jesus is Jewish. And these Galilean women are with him, also Jewish women. Now their Jewishness is very obvious in the last verse of our text. On the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. According to what commandment? You know it, it's in the law of Moses, that law which God had given. It's the fourth of the Ten Commandments, if you know those, you have those by memory. It's the fourth one, and it reads in Exodus 20 like this. Remember, this is to the Jewish people at their covenant with God. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor 
And do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You, your son, your daughter, male servant, female servant, livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. Because in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, sea, all that's in them. And he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So when sundown comes, Good Friday, these Jewish women rest because they're Jewish. And that is what you do then if you are Jewish. They are living under the old covenant. Jesus is inaugurating anew. But they are living under the old covenant. And the point of Luke is, look, they are faithful. They didn't break the Sabbath. In the Old Testament, people were put to death for breaking the Sabbath. It was a serious law. And these are faithful women who are keeping the Sabbath. Jesus' burial is happening in the context, in the sea, the environment of Judaism in almost every conceivable way. Now you know if you go then beneath the surface for these women that there is a real Judaism of the heart as far as we can tell here. Number one, because, well, here they are. They don't have to be here. If their expectation of this Jesus was the same as the crowds, that he would just be an immediate earthly ruler to give them bread and circuses, to itch their itches, to make them feel good, and to take away the Romans and all the bad right now, then why would they be here? He's dead. He's not going to do it now. Their devotion and attachment to him, whatever level of faith they may have had, I don't know, but their devotion and attachment to him transcends that. These are faithful, God-fearing Jewish women who are present and want to, evidently, they don't consider the 75 pounds sufficient for a man as great as their rabbi Jesus, and they intend to bring even more. Even in their resting, you see their Jewishness because they're resting not arbitrarily, they're resting according to the commandment. And that's not to win salvation, It's because their heart is different. It appears something's happened in there. These are Jews circumcised of the heart, committed to the Christ who has come, even though he is dead and lifeless before them. Now again, you and I are not today under the old covenant nor the Mosaic law, as though it were directly binding upon us. When Jesus came at the Last Supper, he said, this cup is the cup of the blood of the new covenant that I'm inaugurating and the book of the Hebrews tells us that the old covenant has been done away with to make room for a new covenant. Doesn't mean the Jewish people are done away with, but it does mean that we now live under the new covenant. Your Bible is divided in two parts, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Testament is just an old word for covenant because we live in the new testament the new they lived in the old testament old covenant we live in the new covenant that's why there are many commandments given in the mosaic law about eating lobster for example which is prohibited you can eat lobster the reason is because you're in a new covenant and so today you follow the commands given in the new covenant but for them living right at that transitional period they are faithful jews under the old covenant And therefore, they keep the commands that were particular to that covenant. 
as an expression of their fear of God, devotion to him, changed hearts. These are Jews indeed. They are righteous women, so far as we can tell, and devoted to Jesus. And Luke, again, mentions them right here. He doesn't have to. There will be other reasons. There will be witnesses of the resurrection. But he mentions them here also to show these women are Jews indeed. Real, true Jews. And look how they respond to Jesus. Even this lifeless body of Jesus, it is with honor. 75 pounds of spices is not enough. They must bring more. They leave to go prepare it. And the reason they leave is because they are keeping the commandment as true Jews. But they will come back in order to honor their Savior. They're watching the way he's buried. They're looking at how he's laid. All of this is because this is their Messiah. This is how true Judaism looks to Christ. Granted, it was difficult for the Jewish people to understand how their king, who's supposed to fix everything, is broken on a tree. But the Old Testament had predicted even this in passages like Isaiah 53. Everything preparing the way for Christ to come once to suffer, and then to come again to complete all things. So they might not have understood as he lies there lifeless, exactly how this works, and yet you see faith, devotion to him in them, and they honor him. This is, of course, an unusual Easter message, but it's the way Luke presents it to us, that this is the preparation for you to see the resurrection that we'll be seeing in the next few weeks. And I must say, I don't know where you are coming from, if you're visiting or what your views of Jesus are precisely, but I would point you simply to the fact that do not find it unusual that there is not one other people group of the ancient world that has been dislocated from its land that has persisted and preserved its own unique identity to this point today. There's none as ancient as the Jewish people. Not one. The handful of others that have survived with a unique identity from that period, thousands of years before the time of Christ, were locked into their specific land, and that helped them to preserve their identity. But the Jewish people have lived lives of exile. They've been cast into all the nations, and yet in the many places they go, they're still Jewish. At least, isn't that an interesting thing? I'm telling you, there's literally not a parallel anywhere in the world. As if this were a hint or a clue that perhaps what God intends to do in this world is to be done through the Jewish people. This is why of all the major religions that exist today, think of it, Islam and Christianity both ground themselves in Judaism. Islam, incorrectly, it came many hundreds of years later, but it's because Judaism is ancient, it's Old, And this is why the early Christians, when they were accused of inventing a new religion, they rightly responded, no, we were born in the manger of Judaism. This is where we come from. It's as ancient as anything else. It's older than your current Greek and Roman myths. It's based in Abraham and God's promises to him. There is no ancient people like the Jewish people who have preserved a unique identity in exile in the world. Not one. Not a single parallel. And so then even the major world religions today, you have Islam and Christianity, 
which found themselves in Judaism, and the other contenders, which are the Eastern, you would have Hinduism, which probably the Vedas of the Hindu people were penned around the time of Abraham, and Buddhism came out of Hinduism. So these are the major contenders. If you're wondering what's true, these are the major contenders in the world, and it's only Judaism that has preserved its identity in exile, and there's only one other major religion that has preserved its identity in exile, and that is Christianity. Islam is still centered in the Middle East. The Eastern religions are still centered in the East, but just like Judaism, the elect of God, Christians, who carry on what was founded in Judaism, have been scattered here, there, have moved continents from the Middle East up into Europe, over to the New World, and continue moving southward into the Southern Hemisphere today. God's long purpose in history through the Jewish people, fulfillment in the Messiah, all of this preparing the way for resurrection. It is not an afterthought and it is not an accident. This is the truth of God. This is reality. And you today have to make your decision of what you will do with these pieces of information that are laid before you. It's like the lifeless body of Jesus lies before you. You've seen him crucified for sinners upon the cross. That was his claim. And now you too have to make the decision. Will you go in the way of the larger body of Judaism and reject this Messiah despite the evidence, despite the prophecies, despite the hints and the clues throughout the world and throughout your life all pointing you in this direction? Or, like that small and persecuted minority through all time, will you, with Joseph, will you, with the Galilean women, hope against hope? And even if you can't fit all the pieces together, believe that this is the Messiah, the long-awaited descendant of Adam to undo the curse, the descendant of Abraham to bring blessing to the world and salvation, and the son of David and Messiah, who will undo all the wrong that has been through his death, and through his resurrection. Let's pray. Jesus, you have given ample reason and evidence to believe everything that you have said about yourself, everything that this word says about you. You've done it historically. You've done it in our lives, we are without excuse. We stand here before you now and you require of us this faith not to live a perfect life but to believe in one who did. And I want to plead on behalf of your people who are present here, whom you love, for whom you died, for whom you raised to justify, to win an eternal paradise. I pray that you would now give them great hope that that dead and lifeless body of our Savior in the text is not dead and lifeless anymore and the same shall be true of us. You are the first fruits and we follow after. We believe, we hope against hope. We know that if our bodies should go cold and lifeless, we are in him who is life. And as he lives, so shall we. Give us this courage and I pray for those who are present who do not have that hope or expectation. Lord, that you would Continue in your kindness to push them to repentance and to show them that the evidence points to you being true. It's our sin that points away from that. It's 
temptation that leads us to doubt. I pray you'd remove the veil from the heart that they might see Christ in your face, the glory of God, the creator, the almighty, the everlasting. I pray you would do this for the sake of your great name. Amen.